Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap at the end of the week. And it's been an interesting week uh, featuring my great friend and portfolio manager extraordinaire, Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how you doing, buddy? I'm so impressed. I got an upgrade. Usually I'm just the good friend. So <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Well, look, it's it's been a crazy week, um, one of which, and maybe we'll talk about this near the end, uh, but just to put it out there for folks, because um, I've gotten a lot of kind words from this community, and I, I want to really extend my gratitude for that. Um, rough week uh, for the Taggart family. Uh, my mother's in the process of dying. We had to put her in the hospice uh, a couple of days ago. Um, sad, but actually some really wonderful parts about the, the journey that if we get time, I'll, I'll elaborate on. Um, but definitely has given me some insights to share with people um, who may have relatives in the future that go through the healthcare system and the dying process. Uh, I've had a crash course in the whole thing this week, and there, there's some stuff I really wished I knew going in. Uh, but anyways, I have not had a chance to follow the markets this week nearly as closely as possible. And so I'm going to be leaning on you extra hard here, Lance. Um, but uh, I think you'd, you'd have to be completely uh, out of the picture not to know that it was a, it was a big week in the markets. Uh, the rally continues at full steam. Um, are we are we watching a melt up happen here in the process? Well, there's certainly some you know some kind of some indications of that, particularly you know if you look uh, you know at the tech sector itself, and that's kind of one of the big kind of drivers of the markets. We, we you know we've talked a lot here recently about you know uh, it's been seven stocks really kind of driving the market. It's been Nvidia, and Apple, and Microsoft, and and Google. And that's that's been a very true statement. Um, you know, last week in particular, we talked about actually the last two weeks um, here on the show, as well as in our newsletter um, at realinvestmentadvice.com. Shameless plug. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about sector rotation, you know, and I kind of showed you these charts over the last couple of weeks talking about this rotation in the market. And, and Adam, if you can uh, let me share here real quick. <laughs> the the uh, if you take a look, you know, Earlier this year, the markets were up 10, 11, 12, 13%. This is the red line. That's the S&P market cap weighted index. And, you know, we were talking earlier this year about it's just seven stocks. That's what's driving the market. You know, XO seven stocks, the market's negative for the year. And that was a very true statement. But, you know, we were talking about how the extension of the market had really gotten out there. And a lot of those unloved sectors were going to start getting a little bit of love. And that's that sector rotation we're talking about. And you can see that the black line, which is the S&P equal weighted index, has now had a very big move here really since the beginning of June. And that's that sector rotation at work. A lot of these value stocks starting to get a little bit of attention here. Some of those deep out of favor sectors starting to get some attention here. Um, now, does that last? That's, that's the big story. But from a standpoint of market health, breadth is getting better. And that that is good news. Now, to your question about a melt-up, there's certainly some aspects of that. We've moved very far, very quickly in this market, and we're starting to push levels of deviation that, you know, normally you're going to get to the point of where you see a correction. And, and we talked recently about Fibonacci retracement levels. And if we kind of look at the market from the beginning of the January of last year through the bottom of that October low, we've done a very large uh, retracement of that. Not only did we break about, break out above the 50% retracement, we clipped right through the 61 point. And, and I, I know this is technical mumbo jumbo. Don't worry about Don't get too involved with it. 
Um, these are mathematical levels that historically kind of tell you a bit about what the market's doing. But we went through a 61.8% retracement level. And normally when you do that, you are in a bull market. You have, have pretty much ended the bear market. The bear market low was last October. And now markets are really starting to get much more back into a bullish trend. But importantly, we've got some very big resistance that's coming up. And if and we're about to go into earnings season. So if we don't see a real improvement in earnings to help support the underlying narrative of the market, we're here for a 10% correction data retest that kind of breakout level sometime over the next couple of months. All right. Hey, and Lance, you, you glitched while you were saying that, but I think I heard you say, uh, if we don't see the earnings growth to support this, you would not be surprised to see like a 10% correction. Is that what we yeah, five, yeah, five to 10%. Um, you know, kind of look at that 50-day moving average and that 200-day moving average as kind of some key support levels for this rally. And again, if, if earnings don't really kind of match up to, because expectations are really getting out there in terms of profit growth and earnings growth. And despite the fact that you know, we've had just a, a, a very strong, aggressive Federal Reserve over the last year. Um, that red line, by the way, on this chart, um, that's where the market is currently trading. That is above now. We basically have, have retraced back every Fed rate hike going back to March of last year. So all those rate hikes, the markets have now just completely recovered all those rate hikes in the market. So the markets are saying basically at this point, those rate hikes don't matter. The economy's strong enough to withstand it. It's all going to be fine. Earnings are going to continue to grow here. Profit margins are going to continue to grow here. I think that's a very hard reach for the markets at this point. So again, a 5 to a 10% correction at this point to work off some of the froth would not be surprising at all. And as long as we can kind of maintain this upward channel that I'm showing you on the screen right now, you can see that kind of very defined upward channel we're in. As long as we can stay in that channel, we're good. Now, if we break below that, then this whole conversation about a bull market is going to change pretty quickly. Okay. Um, so two things on that. One, I just interviewed David Hay, and uh, he, he you know, very much underscored the, the dichotomy that you're talking about here, right? Which is uh, there's going to be, there's going to need to be a lot of economic health to support a, these levels and B, a continued movement up here in a bull market. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there still seems to be a really massive divorce between that and the underlying uh, macro fundamentals. And Lance, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and again, there's the old saying, the market can remain irrational longer than you expect. <laughs> and you know, we had Ed Yardini on this week, uh, and we'll talk about that too. You know, he's a lot more sanguine about what the economy could do from here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there may be, there may be that catch up, right. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but also just to, to your chart, you don't have to bring it back up, but, okay. um, uh, Sven Henrik, the technical analyst, uh, was on last time or last time he was on, talked about the battle for the control is what he called it, that the markets have been locked in for a good long while. Uh, and they have been right up until very recently. Uh, and it was really between 3,800 and 4,200. Well, the chart you showed is okay. That battle's now been won by the bulls. Yes. Right? We've, we've had the breakout. Um, yes. Now it's a matter of you know how long it can last, how far it can run. Um, just to let folks know, um, the, on the current schedule, um, I'm scheduled to interview Sven early next week. So uh, any surprises to my schedule pending, um, and there may be some, um, you're going to hear from Sven uh, very soon, folks, about what 
what's next now that the battle for uh, for control is over all right so you've got some charts up here lance i'm just going to shut up and let you talk to them no no and, and really i just pulled up a chart to kind of go along with what you were saying and this kind of reiterates your point we were talking again look and you know analysts right now right they're 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 forecasting earnings going out into the future and they're saying that between now and the end of next year, we're going to be at all-time new high on earnings. Now, there's nothing wrong with that except analysts are always overly exuberant. But in order to have that earnings growth, you've got to have fairly consistently strong earnings growth because that's where earnings come from, right? So it's what you and I buy in the in, you know at the gas station, at the grocery store. That's where earnings come from, right? I'm buying a new Apple iPhone or a VR headset or whatever. That's where the earnings come from. So if if we don't have economic growth, we don't have earnings. Um, because we don't have as much consumption. That's why you have negative economic growth. So if there is still the risk of an economic slowdown and much weaker economic growth, then markets are way overpriced right now for those potential underlying earnings. And so earnings are going to have to come down theoretically if we don't start seeing earnings really gain, uh, sorry, the economy gain some traction here. Um, I just want to show you this one chart too, though, because talking about this potential for a market correction, the VIX, the volatility index, and yes, before you jump off on the zero DTE train, mm -hmm. and I understand that that right now there's a there's a big problem with the VIX because of the zero day to expiration options, which, by the way, is going on today. We have quadruple witching on Friday, on, you know, on Friday here. So. The point, though, is, is that the VIX itself is trading at extremely low levels. There's no fear of a correction in the market. Um, put volume is extremely decimated. I mean, everybody hates puts right now. People can't buy enough calls. And so you're definitely getting to a point of kind of short-term exuberance in the markets. And historically, going back, whenever you've had such a low reading on the VIX, combined with put hate and call love, that's typically been, you know, near at least a short-term top in the markets. And you know, going back to this idea of having at least a short-term correction. So if you're looking to get money into the markets, if you're looking to add some exposure here, you know, don't do it today. I think you're going to have a better opportunity in the next couple of months when you get this type of just a, a correctional process within the markets. And that would be a healthy thing, by the way. The markets need to go up and come down before they can go up again. That's just a healthy process of the markets. Now, if something else happens and we start actually seeing the onset of a recession or, uh, you know, uh, uh, another type of, you know, a basic, uh, maybe a pickup in the financial issues with the banks, et cetera, then that's a different story. And we'll have that conversation when we get there. Okay. Um, I'm just going to put up a chart here super quickly to underscore your point about uh, the options buying. Uh, we've just seen the highest level of S&P call buying ever. Yeah. Um, so to your point, um, people are definitely on the bullish train right now. And it's amazing to, to, to say that, given how aggressive call buying was everywhere in the market, you know, two years ago when there was all this liquidity sloshing around and everybody was, you know, into meme stocks and all the super speculative, uh, you know, instruments back then. And, and yet, you know, we don't we don't have that speculative pan speculative fervor you know across every asset class but still we're hitting new records right now so that really does tell you something and also um you know i've been uh i've been getting a lot of people pinging me and saying um hey is this david hunter's you know call that he's made for years now right of, of, of s p melt up to six thousand, right um i mean i i i personally don't think that that we're going to get there anytime soon of course it could be wrong 
Um, but uh, but all of a sudden, you know, people are starting to think really big like that right now, which I take as a sign of okay, yeah, you're, the mania is probably getting exuberance is getting ahead of, of reality here. But but curious what you think? No, no, it, look, we're not going well. Okay, S and P six thousand. Will the S and P get to six thousand? Yes, it someday, will. Someday, yes. <laughs> someday, yes. Absolutely. Um, could be, you know, five years from now, ten years from now. But yeah, we'll definitely get there. Um, that's just a function of economic growth and inflation and those type of things. Um, a melt up to six thousand. Could that occur? Yeah, it could if valuations weren't already at thirty times earnings. You know, and so the problem, the problem that we have is, is that we had a correction last year, not a bear market. Because in a bear market, you revert valuations, and we never reverted valuations, and we never broke the long-term uptrend of the markets. In fact, this is a, a subject that I wrote about on Friday uh, in particular. Um, but this is an article we wrote about on Friday talking about the difference between corrections and bear markets. And this is important because we never corrected valuations. And you know, as you were talking about, Adam, you know, in 2021, we were talking about meme stocks and, you know, GameStop, the AMCs, et cetera. We were talking about SPACs and IPOs. And we had, and, and we had call love and put hate back in 2021. Very similar setup to what we have now. The only difference now is, is that everybody's chasing anything artificial intelligence related. So we, and, and again, it, that's not just that. I mean, if you also look at the most fundamentally weak companies, those are the ones having the biggest gains in the markets. If you look at the most shorted stocks, those are the ones having the biggest gains in the markets. You know, so we've gone back to that very speculative fervor that we saw back in 2021. Why? Because we taught everybody back in 2021, how do you make money in the market? You speculate on calls. I've been getting a ton of emails from people going, I want to trade options. How do I trade options? And I'm like, if you just want to lose money, send it to me. I'll just take it from you. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, this is but but this is the the, the environment that we go back into. Um, and so this will eventually end. The question is, is what will cause it? And you know, we could look at, for instance, Nvidia. One of the reasons that Nvidia just went skyrocketing after their earnings wasn't because that they beat earnings. Their actual revenue and profit declined from the previous year. Um, the reason that it went screaming off because they said, hey, our earnings are going to grow by 50% next quarter because of AI and because of the chips and et cetera. So, and we've written a couple of articles about this is that you know, there's a problem with this thesis because they have to assume they're the only player in the market. Well, just last week, AMD came out and said, hey, guess what? We have a new G GPU. The yep. problem with a market like we have is that it's going to attract competition. At some point, Adam's going to go out and, and figure out how to build, a, if there's enough demand and there's enough money being made in it, Adam's going to go out and figure out how to build a GPU to come into the market and be cheaper than everybody else. What, 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 do, what, what do you think the A in AI stands for, Lance? Exactly. It's the, it's the Adam intelligence. But the point is, is, is that when it comes down to market dynamics, people don't necessarily have to buy the best. Maybe NVIDIA does have the very best GPU. But at $250,000 a unit, there's going to be a lot of companies that go, you know what, if I can get one for $100,000, it's not as good as NVIDIA's, but it gets me to where I want to be. I'm going to buy that. because I'll, I'll get two and it's still cheaper. <laughs> Correct. And, and, and because of just uh, the ability to spend CapEx, right? There's not that many companies that can go out and buy 500 GPUs at a time at a quarter million dollars a piece to you know build an AI project. So the, so the market demand is going to drag in competition at cheaper costs, lowering profit margins, 
And this becomes problematic for NVIDIA in the future. We saw this happen with the cloud. We talked about this before. Mm -hmm. uh, cloud, uh, cloud profitability has dropped sharply because competition is causing costs to come down, uh, prices to come down to get business. Uh, that's just the way the market works. So when you take a look at a company like NVIDIA trading at 40 times price to sales, that becomes really problematic for that company to generate that. So the point is, is that eventually reality is going to come back to the market. But this fantasy, as you said earlier, you know, markets can remain a logical laundry room solvent. That's where we are. And this can go a lot further than you think. Um, go If you don't believe me, go back and look at a chart in 1999 of what the NASDAQ did right. over com. These things can go a lot longer than you think before they break. So, you know, the point here is that, look, I'm not bullish. I am not bearish. I am just the market is doing this right now. We have to participate to make money for our clients. And so we're on this side of the fence right now because we want to make money. Um, when the time comes, I will get dramatically more bearish and conservative in portfolios, but we're not there yet. And if you're trying to short the market now, you're going to lose a lot of money most likely before this thing finally breaks. Yeah, that's a good warning. We've talked about that. Harder to make money on the short side because timing becomes so important. Um, so I mentioned I, I interviewed Ed Yardeni. Um, it's interesting. You know, he he is optimistic. Um, he's got a good argument for it. You know, I would I, 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 I like told you, by the way, I told you he was going to be. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 you did. But what I appreciated about Ed is I thought it was a good measured discussion. You know, I, there were a lot of people who listened who probably are more in the bearish camp and, and they didn't necessarily agree with everything you said, but but he made a, a good rational argument for for you know why he sees what he sees um but uh, but even he who is you could call him you know a bull um is looking at the market action right now and saying you know i thought the market was going to do well this year but he says i'm, I'm concerned it's going too far too fast uh and uh and even he is kind of hoping that there's a little bit of steam coming out of this because as you've said many times you know he said melt-ups tend to be followed by meltdowns um, and uh, this could be the market just literally getting too far ahead of itself here, which you know then injures the people that get in too late. So even he's a little bit cautious right now. Um, all right, uh, lots to talk and, about. And by, by the way, by, by the way, I have huge respect. Just I don't want anybody to walk away from what my comment was a second ago when I said he was going to be bullish. I have huge, I have massive respect for Ed Yardini. He's a very smart guy. He's just always bullish. He's a perennial bull. And he's always optimistic, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, don't don't mistake that. Yeah. But you know, I just you know, I, I have. He's a very smart guy. He's been around the markets a bajillion years, and you know, he, he knows what he's talking about. So you know, I definitely, I definitely give weight. If you disagree with his whole premise, you should at least consider what he's saying because he's right more often than he's wrong. Yeah, you should you should know your reasons why. And look, you know, we've talked a lot about this is the, the purpose of this channel is not to be pushing one particular market view. It's to try to bring on intelligent people, really understand their positions. And then you as the intelligent viewer trying to parse, you know, which makes the most sense to you in particular. What is funny, though, and I do take this as sort of, again, a, a, an emotional sign of where we are right now is, you know, as the markets have gone up this year, especially as the the action has turned from sort of a bottoming to you know a takeoff here uh there's been a lot of people coming out and taking pot shots and saying oh all these bulls you had on the channel were wrong and nobody called this and and look i mean i don't think anybody called you know for an ai driven melt up uh coming into to 2023 so that's that's on everybody 
But, you know, this sort of comments of like, oh, this is a bearish only channel. And as I've said many times, it's not. It's just I happen to bring on data driven people. I don't even know what their positions are most of the time when they come on. And they just are concerned, given all the data that, that we all talk about here. Um, but now that I've had a couple of people who are more on, on the bullish side recently, um, you know, we had Ed, we had um, uh, Michael Howell, we had Dan Tapiero, a few others. Um, you know, all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, well now you bring the bulls on. Well, that's, you know, too, too little, too late. And then it's probably the sign of a top because you get a bull in right now. It's like, there's just no pleasing anybody in this market right now. No, you know, you're not ever going to please everybody on, on, you know, YouTube. And that's, you know, absolutely for sure. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting too, because I, I think I've been, you know, fairly balanced over the You've last- You've been super balanced. I was going to say, that's why we have this show on every week is because yeah. you do a really good job of saying, I'm going to hold both ideas in my mind and we're going to bat it around for an hour and a half. Well, so you- no, well, no. And my point about that is, is I think I've, you know, I've tried really hard, you know, here on this channel in particular, but it's just in general, writing articles and newsletters and those type of things, trying to keep a really balanced approach. Hey, here's the bad news. Here's the good news. Here's what's going on. But it's interesting now, like on my Twitter. Uh, so if you follow me on Twitter at Lance Roberts, um, you know, that is funny because now I'm getting all these people going, oh, well, Lance has turned bullish. So that means the top of the market is here. It's like, no, I've been bullish for a while because markets have been doing better. Um, but it's interesting, you know, there's there's always that group of people that are going to try to knock you down for one reason or the other. And, and, and that's the problem with too much social media, too much too much of everything at this point, you know, these, you know, very small voices have a, a big weight on you that they shouldn't have. And this is why it's so important. And again, this is why I go back to talking about, you know, when I'm managing money, if I showed you my office right now, there's no TV on, there's no news channel on. Uh, if you take a, you know, I, I, I do read a lot of articles every day, but I don't have a live trading screen in front of me every moment of every second of every day. I have access to all that data. So when I need it, it's there. But I turn all that stuff off during the day, unless I specifically need something like we're looking at a position, we're going to buy or sell or whatever. I turn it off because it will drive you to make bad decisions because of that emotional impact. And you know, it's the same thing with social media. You know, You don't remember all the good things that people say. The one thing you'll take away with you, when, I'm, I'm not talking about a financial social media, I'm talking your personal social fi financial, you know, your personal social media. You know, all these people say, Adam, you know, I love you. You're great, whatever. You're awesome. You know, I think you're a great guy. And there's one guy that says, oh, you're an asshole. And that's the only thing you take away from the whole day. You can have 500 positive comments, right. one guy that calls you an asshole, and you take that home with you, right? And it just destroys your whole day because this one person doesn't like you for, and, and he's probably just having a miserable day and just needed to take it out on you. Um, but that's the, that's the issue. If you want to be a better investor, you had to turn that stuff off and, and set it aside. I'm not saying don't watch this channel. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying don't look at, the, I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Just turn it off when you're working your financial side of your business Focus on that. What drives it? What causes stocks to go up and down? What is going on with economic data? Look at the facts, forget all the emotional stuff, and then you'll do a lot better job managing money long term. So I totally agree. We've talked about this before on, on the channel. Um, for me, I just sort of mentioned this because I, I think it's a sign of sentiment extremes. So you yeah. remember back in October, right? I mean, we had, you, I mean, you were saying on this channel, look, folks, you know, 
It can't get any worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were saying like, look, you know, people are talking about, you know, the dollar is going to die tomorrow and, and we're going to have the next Great Depression in 2023. And, and it was very sort of like end of times type thing. And you were trying to tell people, hey, look, yes, there's there's, you know, some storm clouds out there, but it's 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 probably not as dire as folks are, are expecting. And look, you know, that then again, sentiment extremes generally kind of, it's like what you say all the time, when everybody's on one side of the boat, probably something else is going to happen, right? And it seems to me that that we're now kind of at the sentiment extreme on the other end now. And it's just one more data point where maybe something different than what now they're now expecting is, is going to happen. Um, all right, well, look, um, on this topic of sentiment, though, um, uh, you've written two articles this week that are pretty related. Um, one is the, uh, hey, you know, we're, we're now in a new bull market here in the short term. We've had the breakout. Uh, you titled that piece, It's Different This Time. Um, so I'd love to just sort of have you underscore for folks what the key element of that piece was. And then also, if you want to blend in some of your earlier article where you were talking about how FOMO's back you know, sentiments extreme. If there's anything else we haven't talked about on that end, let's wrap that in too. Sure. Um, okay. So first, of all, let me. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let me share a screen here real quick. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to to share this. Maybe I'll just drop into the article itself, and we'll just kind of start there. Just give me one second to pull that article up. Um, the the reason that you know we're talking about things being a little bit different this time, and again, when we go now, what we're talking about specifically is last week, the market eclipsed a 20% return from the October lows. So the markets were up 20% from the lows. Now, immediately, the, the media jumped on this and says, oh, the, bull market, the bear market's over, the bull market's back because we're up 20% from the lows. The 20% number is entirely arbitrary. That was something that goes back in history and there's a problem with that number today because markets are so deviated from long-term means and long-term bullish trends that these 20% corrections, which used to, you know, back in 19, you know, the 1970s, the 1980s, even 1990s, if you had a 20% correction, you were breaking bullish trends, you had a negative price dynamic in the market. But we haven't had that really. Um, since 2009, because markets have, have gotten so far ahead of where they should be on a bullish trajectory. And so um, having said that here, let me uh, go to a share screen here real quick. Um, so if we take a look, a couple of things that are going on in particular. So first of all, and this, as I said, is, is that, you know, what was interesting, and I apologize, this chart's a little bit small, it's not mine. Um, but as soon as this 20% number happened, we had this huge jump in the number of articles written saying, hey, this is a new bull market. So this chart is the market from January 1st of 2022 through the end of the year. And that red box is that 20% rally that everybody said, hey, this is a new bull market. And we wrote in, we said, hey, be careful with that um, because we're still in a negative trend of the market. And the market ran right into the 200-day moving average and failed. So even though we had a 50% retracement, that was another article that everybody wrote. It's like, oh, the markets had a 50% retracement of its decline. That's always a bull market. Markets are always higher after that. And it wasn't. And it was just because this time we got deviated well below that 200-day moving average. So we had to rally back to that 200-day moving average, still in the downtrend. We were still in a negative trend of the markets. 
and the markets had more work to do at that point. And so this was why that wasn't a, a bull market. Now, this is the important thing. I want to focus on this for just a moment because this is critical to the story of what's happening in the markets today. We're not in, last year was not a bear market. 2020 was not a bear market. But Lance, the markets were down 35% in 2020. That's a bear market. We were down more than 20. No, it wasn't. Why wasn't it? It wasn't because we never broke that bullish trend from the 2009 lows. We corrected to it numerous times. We came back to that bullish trend, but prices never got into a negative trend of the market. Like we saw in, in 2001 and two, we broke that uptrend. We had a negative trend in markets. In 2007 and eight, we broke the uptrend from 2003. We had a negative trend in prices. Since 2009, that has not occurred. In fact, the correction last year didn't even get close to that. We are so deviated with that $5 trillion worth of stimulus that the markets were never able to correct back to that level. So either we're eventually going to retest that bullish uptrend line at some point in the future, don't know when, um, but we certainly haven't done it. So for right now, 2022 was not a bear market. It was a correction. Here's the important point about this. Lance, who cares? We were down 20%. It's a bear market. Call it a bear market. It was a bear market. Everybody was negative. There's a difference between a bull market and, and, and a correction. A correction, and you'll and look at the, if you look at this chart in front of you, you'll see this to be a fact, is that corrections are short-term in nature. They come down, they, they test some level of support. Trend, the prices of the market remain in a positive trend. And most importantly, Prices recovered all-time highs very quickly. This is what happened in 2020. We had the big correction, but in, in five months, we were at all-time highs again. That's a correction. Bear markets, conversely, have very similar features. One is a big reversion in valuations. You have a valuation reversion in the markets. They're more protracted affairs, and they take a long time to get back to new highs. 2007, 2008, Big reversion in valuations took about five years to get back to new highs. Same thing back in 2001 and two. So we had a big reversion, valuation climb took forever to read, and we didn't actually get to new highs. We barely tapped new highs before 2007, 2008. But these are long protracted affairs. So there is, so right now we're in a correction. And if this market surges to all time highs by the end of this year or next year, uh, early next year, this is going to be the, a, a very definition of a correction. And so this is this is where we are. Why is it different this time? Hey, sorry, can I, can you go back to that chart just for a sec? Yes, please. Uh, okay. One more. One more. <clears throat> um, uh, so looking at this very protracted bull market yep. that we have had and are currently still in, yep. according to this chart, um, let's... Let's look from 2011 to 2020. Um, would you say that's been so prolonged primarily because of all of the stimulus that was going absolutely. on during that time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, this, this, this has nothing to do with, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. This has nothing to do with fundamentals. This no, I know. You're, you're just talking about what is, but, but yeah. looking at this, people are like, why is this you know, most recent run so much longer than the rest? And yeah. I would pause it. Sounds like you would agree. Well, that's because we had sort of you know permanent permanent stimulus being injected for the decade following the global financial crisis, 
And then it deviates so extraordinarily after 2020 because we just put so much more stimulus into the system, right? So and just, just just and just importantly, look back at the bull markets of 2003 through 2008 and 1995 to 2000. Um, you know, you can see those deviations from the bullish trend. They weren't that great. So if you had a 20% correction, you were popping negative prices. Um, you know, but you can see here is that it really in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, that was kind of, you know, 2010, 11, and 12, and 13 was a very normal kind of bull market coming out of 2008. It really went haywire starting in about 13, when in 2013, when Ben Bernanke launched the trillion dollars worth of QE to avoid the fiscal cliff after the whole debt ceiling trauma in, in 2011. When that money came in, everybody was expecting this fiscal cliff was going to really just collapse the economy, but it didn't. And all of a sudden you had this massive amount of stimulus and the market got really deviated from that long-term bullish trend. And then we kept going, we kept doing more and more and more. And you keep seeing that each one of these rallies keeps getting further and further deviated from that long-term bullish trend, which is why in 2020, when you had that 35% correction, it just went back to the bullish trend. That's all that happened. We just reverted that excess. And then we hit it with five. And instead of leaving things alone, we got to throw $5 trillion of liquidity and a trillion dollars a month of, of QE into the mix. And that deviation now is so huge. It's going to take a, a, it would take a 50% decline from that peak in total to get back to just the bullish trend. In other words, I wrote an article called this is that a 50% decline would only be a correction. That's what it would have taken from the 2022 peak to test that trend line was a 50% drawdown. And that would still have only been a correction in a bull market. That's okay. the part to conceive of how, how distorted these markets are because of liquidity. Okay, great point. Totally following you here on that. And the only point I wanted to make, which which I think will tie into what you're going to talk about, is what is different now versus back to the, the start of that run in 2011 is the policy side of things, yes. at least the, the monetary policy side of things, right? Yeah. So we now all of a sudden have removed the, I don't know, the, the, the hot air from the blue, whatever you want to say, the thing that has been keeping us aloft for the past decade plus, we've now removed and we're way up at these heights. Right. So, um, but you haven't yeah. removed it. But, see, this but this problem, you haven't removed it. Central bank balance sheets are expanding again. Right. So, all that liquidity is, and yes, the Fed's hiked rates, markets going, okay, great, you hiked rates, but you're going to cut them. And that's even what, uh, uh, what said on, he said this meeting and, Everybody, the market immediately sold off. And then when Jerome Powell got into the presser, he he completely avoided the word skip and completely avoided two more rate hikes pretty much as, as just kind of setting it. It was like, oh, yeah, we might hike rates. But then he said, he said, yeah, at some point it's going to become appropriate to cut rates. Well, that's all the market heard. And immediately the markets went running back up. So the markets are, are addicted to this, this, this stimulus that, oh, cut rates. That means higher stock prices. And yeah, fundamentals haven't mattered in 10 years. So this is all a liquidity market now. Right. And and and, and, and look, it, all I was going to say is it all depends on what the future brings right now, because yeah. we have, yes, central bank balance sheets to a certain extent are, are increasing, but we are still doing QT. We're not pumping in, you know, the the yeah. tens of billions we were doing every month and buying mortgage-backed securities and treasuries and all that stuff. So it's a different uh, world right now. So the, my point well, is, but, is sort of like- 
Well, we'll yep. be careful about that, though. See, you're forgetting about the $1.7 trillion in the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm not, because that's that's a bullet coming up pretty soon here, too. <laughs> but well, so anyways, and, and again, I'm not trying to force the conclusion here, so, yeah. so correct me if I'm wrong, but all, all I'm saying is, is it's going to require a ton of continued liquidity, net liqui positive liquidity yeah. to keep things up here. Yes. And we have we have things that are changing on the ground that haven't been changing in a decade right now. They could reverse. Right. The Fed could go back to printing and QE and all that stuff. Right. But it almost may have to if we want to expect this number to con continue its upward trajectory at this big of a divergence from that bullish baseline. That, that, absolutely correct. Um, and so this is the same chart I just showed you a second ago. It's a log scale, though, so it kind of makes the peaks not look as large. Um, be careful with log scales. A lot of people say, well, you, if you don't put that chart on log scale, it doesn't matter. All a log scale does is take away the impact of large numbers. And it's it's a mathematical kind of, um, but so, you know, everybody goes, you know, in the markets, they go, well, if you put that on a log scale, it doesn't look as dramatic. You're missing the point, right? And, and the deviations are what matter. And, and these deviations are so large. Yes, I can... I can hide the impact of large numbers by using a log scale, and that's fine. And there's certainly times that using a log scale is appropriate, but it's not always appropriate. So just be careful with people telling you it has to be log scale. Sometimes it, it doesn't need to be. Um, but anyway, back to this chart. This is the 200-week moving average and the 40-week moving average. As again, just as I showed you a second ago, we never broke that 200-week moving average. And that's just a, a moving trend in prices. So if we get drawing lines on a chart, this is just the 200-week moving average. And we've never broken that. We're back above the 40-week moving average. That has been, and if you kind of look back over time, whenever we've been kind of trending higher, we've been above the 40-week moving average. That's where we are now. So again, just kind of another uh, reiteration of where we are. Again, so I, I showed you that that first chart where we had the 20% rally back in 2022 that wasn't a new bull market. This 20% rally has taken a lot longer to get there than it did back in 2022, but we are above 20% now uh, from those lows. The difference this time is just twofold, two things to pay attention to. The reason that the market's trending better now and the reason that we're, we want to be buying dips now versus selling rallies is because of really just two technical issues. One, the 50-day is now crossed above the 200-day moving average. That suggests that prices are trending higher. That's all the moving average is. It just says, where are prices going, up or down? Well, 50-day moving averages are trending higher. That typically tends to be bullish support for markets short term. Also, we're now trading well above the 200-day moving average. In fact, a little bit too far right now. The deviation on the NASDAQ is 20% above the 200-day. We're about 10% above the 200-day on the S&P. Those deviations can't last very long, so you are going to get a correction. But as long as we stay in this kind of bullish pattern of rising prices, we're above moving averages, the, 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 the overall environment remains positive. You want to be buying dips. Again, that's going to change eventually. And, and look, this to your point, Adam, the, the, the liquidity or lack of liquidity going forward is going to become problematic. But that could be next year. It could be next month right? when it shows up. But when it shows up, we'll change. Right now, though, we've got to make money with the markets. We want to invest. We want to grow our capital. We want to do it safely. 
But we want to take advantage of opportunity when the market gives us that opportunity. And we're getting there. Look, bullish hey, sentiment. Re sorry, real, real, real quick, just to get back to that chart just for one sec. Yeah. Um, so is it fair to say, so, you know, beginning of this year, you know, you were telling people, hey, look, we, we've been increasingly defensively positioned as 2022 has been going on. Um, things look bad uh, yeah. in the moment, but we think, you know, there's opportunity here. And you were warning everybody not to be, you know, super, super bearish. And you started to say, okay, look, we're starting to, we're starting to, you know, enter the dance floor. Right. Yep. You know, and, uh, and, and now over the past couple of months, you've been, you've been adding more. I mean, prudently, you haven't gone a whole hog. So, is it, <laughs> so far, <laughs> so far, is it suffice it to say that you are, you are now dancing, um, but you're starting to begin to just move a little bit closer to the exit. Well, is what we never unfortunately, and I'm paying the price for this right now. Um, and you know, it, you know, earlier this year we were buying, you know, stocks that were fundamentally valued and those type of things more on the defensive side of the of the the economy. We thought the economy and the markets would do better. Um, we did anticipate the AI chase. That was something that kind of blossomed. We own those stocks. The problem is I don't own enough of them. They're, 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 small, they're small relative to what their total sizing should be in our portfolio. So I own them, I just don't own enough of them. Um, and, and so what's happened you know, this year is we were talking about that deviation between the S&P 500 market cap and equal weight, our portfolio was more equal weighted. So our performance relative to the market cap weighted index is lagging because we don't have seven stocks making up the entirety of our portfolio. That's beginning to change now. Over the last two weeks, our performance has picked up markedly because of things we've been adding uh, in the portfolio. We added AMD, we added regional banks, uh, PNC and, and Truist Financial. Those have done well. Uh, I, I, I imagine some of the rotations helping too, yeah. right? That, 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 that's, well, you know, that's exactly the point. Stanley Black & Decker, which is a value company, has had a huge run over the last couple of weeks. It's doing great. Um, so there's, you know, we're starting to see that rotation with the market. So those ads we've been making have now been paying off while we're waiting to add to those technology positions. They were just too expensive, too deviated. I couldn't justify buying more Apple or AMD. You know, we bought AMD like three months ago. We're up 30% on it. So I can't justify adding to it here. I need that thing to pull back some to build that position size. So I'm hoping that we get a correction uh, because a our defensive positioning will protect us against a, a, any type of short-term correction, but then give us an opportunity to add some of those cyclical exposures to the portfolio to balance the portfolio better for the environment that we're in. So we're, but yeah, so we're on the dance floor, but unfortunately, we're really close to the edge of the dance floor. We never made it to the middle, unfortunately. Okay, um, the, the great description. And again, just to your point of given where things are, feeling a little yeah. richly valued right now, are, 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 even though you're not near the center of the dance floor yet, are, are you taking a step or two back closer to the exit yet? Or are you just gonna stay where you are and just put more in if there's a correction? We're, we're, pretty, we're still pretty underweight equities. We're only running about 45% equity out of a potential of 60 to 70. So um, I don't need to do a whole lot uh, in terms of becoming more defensive. And we are, and we are taking some action. I'll explain it here in a sec. But um, I don't need to take all. I don't need to go sell a bunch of stuff because the stuff we own is pretty defensive in nature. So I don't Got need it. to raise a bunch of cash. Um, however, what we have been doing <clears throat> is starting to shift more of our duration in our bond portfolio 
as a protective measure. So if we get a correction, we should see yields come down. And you know, we talked about before how the two-year treasury is a very close leading indicator of the Fed. And the two-year treasury rate has been starting to fall here over the last week or so. So we're starting to see potentially that first kind of curl over in yields on the two-year treasury that tends to lead the Fed by about six to nine months. And so we should, so if, if the two-year treasury continues to pull back here because inflation is falling, um, which, you know, we just printed a 4% inflation rate earlier this week, that, that suggests that yields are going to come down. So we're starting to shift our, our cash positions that we were using in one to three month T-bills now into one to two, uh, one to three year T-bills and, and our one to threes are moving to five to sevens and our five to sevens are moving to, to 10 to 20. So we're starting to shift that barbell out more to capture yields as they start to decline with inflation and slower economic growth later this year. All right. So take note of that, folks, because that's one of the things that we've been tracking with Lance um, really for almost the course of a year now is yeah. when this term is going to start getting out in duration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were talking. We were talking about inflation peaking last year. Uh, actually, this month. Uh, you mean a year ago this month? We were talking about yeah, inflation you peaking. I, yeah. yeah, you and I, you and I were talking about inflation peaking in June of last year. Yeah, yeah. We were and early we, by we, a month. It started peaking in July, but we were. Yeah, we, we we call it. I mean, I remember we caught flack for it at the time that, yeah. that we were delayed by a month. But when you look back at the historic chart, it's a pretty good call. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're never going to get it perfect, but we were close. Yeah, we were definitely good enough, I think, at least horseshoes and hand grenades, even closer. <laughs> um, all right. So I interrupted you. You were going to talk about sentiment here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just and just and, 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 and again, you know, we talked about last year in, in May and October of last year, we wrote articles about how extremely pessimistic the market was. Uh, this is a chart of just a uh, of the individual retail sentiment. You can just see that just recently we've had this huge jump in bullish sentiment. We're not back huge. towards yet, but definitely starting to get a lot more bullish. Uh, if we look at it, we, have, we run another chart. Now, this is a net bullet. So this is the spread between bulls and bears on both retail and institutions. And you can see that's starting to finally come out of that extreme bearishness as well. Now, that's actually bullish short term because that rising bullishness means that all those people sitting on the sidelines are now having to capitulate and finally buy into the market. So that's one thing that's really been kind of helping this market hold up here recently. But once we start getting up above 2.25, two, uh, on this particular index, it runs between basically zero and, and, and three normally. But once you get above three, you're really getting extreme bullishness. Um, but we're starting to get up that level. We're getting pretty bullish on the market. So again, there's probably some more to go here short term, um, but we are getting closer to a level that suggests we're gonna have a correction. And again, as I was just mentioning, you take a look at deviations from the 200 day moving average. The S&P is getting, it's not there yet, but it's getting pretty deviated from that 200-day moving average. And that typically you know, gets you pretty close to aligning with a short-term peak in the market. Again, don't associate a peak in the market with we're going to have a massive correction you know, of 30%. That's not what I'm saying at all. 5 to 10% corrections are normal in any given year. So a 5 to 10% correction this summer is going to be is completely expected, completely warranted. And that would put the market in a much better position if you want to add some exposure here. NASDAQ is about 20% above its long-term 200-day moving average. That's also starting to get pretty extreme here. So again, I think this isn't a good time to add a lot of exposure. I wouldn't chase markets here. I think you'd be patient. It's going to be painful to be patient. And here's going to be the funny thing about it. 
if you want to buy something, let's say just pick a stock. I want to buy this stock at 100, but it's really overbought. It's three standard deviations overbought. It's, it's RSI is off the chart, et cetera. And you don't buy it. You go, I'm going to wait for a pullback, right? And then the, then the stock goes from 100 to 150. Now, and this happens from sometimes, it goes to 150. You're like, well, man, I missed it. I should have bought it at 100. I missed the whole thing. But then it's going to correct back to 100. And you'll have the opportunity to buy it back at 100. And, and you're going to go, well, I could have bought it at 100 back then and made the 50 bucks and you wouldn't have sold it. But, you know, that's a different story. Yeah, but but you thought you would have. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But when it pulls back to that same level you were at previously, it's a better value on a risk reward basis because you've wrung out that overbought condition. So you may wind up buying the index or buying a stock higher than it is today at some point, but it will be at a better risk reward basis. So don't get too tied up with the price. Understand the risk reward and opportunity that when you're investing capital, What's the risk I'm taking? If you buy NVIDIA today, you're taking a lot of risk with your capital. You could buy NVIDIA at the same price six months from now, and it'll be a lot better opportunity. I know that doesn't seem to make sense, no, but it does. It's a great point. And I've, I've, I've seen some comments from folks recently saying, hey, can you explain the difference between overbought and over um, overbought and, and uh, underbought oh, and yeah. uh, or whatever, overvalued oh, and undervalued? <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, and, and that's a great example where... Um, you can buy the same stock at the same price at different times, but your risk return ratio can be very different given whether it's got overbought readings or, or underbought readings, right? In fact, you could make the argument better to buy a stock at 110 versus at 100 if it's extremely overbought at 100, but is coming off of a sell-off at 110, right? right. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And then this people, the mistakes that investors make is they get too tied up in one metric or another, right? And it's like, and particularly when you're looking at price, I don't want to pay $100 for a stock. It's too expensive. Sometimes a $100 stock can be cheap. And it's just, it don't get tied up. The price doesn't tell you anything. What the price tells you that's important is when that price is deviated from underlying trends or underlying moving averages, those type of things. That's where price is important fundamentals are most important. So, you know, always start on a fundamental basis. Am I buying something that's fundamentally cheap or, or overvalued? Again, you know, I'm going to buy, I will buy NVIDIA at some point here if it pulls back and gives me an opportunity. I will not own it for the next 10 years because it's fundamentally grossly overvalued. It cannot support its valuation. I will buy it for a trade. I own other stocks, Stanley Black & Decker, is a long-term trade. I will probably own Stanley Back and Decker for 20 years because it's trades at a 0.37 times price to sales. You know, there are stocks out there that are fundamentally cheap that you'll want to own long-term. They will pay dividends. They will grow for you. They'll be boring as hell. They're not going to keep up with the market. That's okay. Part of your portfolio can be there just for the dividends and just for the growth. The, the speculative side of your portfolio is where you take those trading opportunities to make some extra money. All right. All right. Yeah. Really well said. And folks, again, just a reminder, this is why we have this segment here so that you can really crawl on the brain of a professional and highly experienced capital manager and see how they think about this stuff. I don't know if you really want to get in my brain, but okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we get to disinfect it first before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
Um, all right. Look, well, we, we we gave some very quick lip service to some important things that happened this week. I think it's just worth talking about them real quick. Um, uh, first, we had um, maybe I'll flip these two. Um, the latest inflation numbers came out. Um, the uh, headline CPI, which is the one that we hear about in the news all the time, that declined from 4.9% to 4.0%. Um, the core CPI came down a little bit to 5.3%. Um, that's proving much more sticky though. And the reason why we talk about core is because that's really the, the inflation metric from the BLS that the, that the Fed looks at, um, in terms of determining policy. It, it looks at that much more closely than it does, uh, the headline CPI. So, um, you know, on, on, on one end headline CPI says, yep, you know, disinflation's continuing, Fed's making decent progress here. Core says, ah, it's probably not making progress as fast as it wants to. Um, and we're going to talk about what Powell said this week in just a second, but it, it's definitely a sign the Fed can't, you know, declare victory. It's not near a victory declaration point at this point, so still needs to be in the hawkish uh, camp. So, Lance, anything you'd, you'd want to add to this? No, no, that's, uh, you know, it's that, the problem with this inflation data is that we've got 28 different measures of, of inflation, right? So mm -hmm. we've got trim mean, we've got core, we've got super core, we got, you know, no core, we whatever. I mean, you know, there's, and everybody looks at each one and goes, oh, this means this, and this means that, and this means the other thing. And, you know, what the Fed, oh, the Fed only looks at this, they don't pay attention to that. And look, I, the Fed pays attention to everything. But you know, the, the problem is, is that inflation is also just a mathematical calculation. And just because inflation is falling does not mean the cost of living is getting any cheaper. You know, if I pay $4 for a gallon of milk in January and I pay $4 for a gallon of milk the next January, inflation is zero. Still paying $4 for a gallon of milk, but inflation is zero. And most of what's happening with inflation right now is that. You know, we're looking at compare this last month, right? Uh, inflation was up 0.1. So everybody's like, ooh, wait, 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 only 0.1 on inflation. We're comparing to 1.2% rates of inflation last year. Right. So yeah, inflation's going to fall sharply. And you know, this is where you and I, we, we were talking about this all in 2022. We said, hey, the peak of inflation is likely in. It's going to fall. It's going to fall sharply because of these year-over-year -year compa comparisons. And we're now in the heat of those comparisons where we had really big numbers to compare to. So that inflation rate is gonna fall back to 2% very quickly. It doesn't mean the cost of living has got any cheaper at all for the average American. In fact, in a lot of cases, uh, prices are still rising. Take a look at what's happening with corporate profit margins. Those actually ticked up last quarter a bit as companies are able to still pass through higher costs to individuals and that's helping protect their profit margin bottom line. But that means that consumers are still paying more for stuff. Right. And this is and if you take a look at retail sales last uh, last week, retail sales were up 0.3 until you factor out the fact that that 0.3 in increase was also the 0.3 increase in inflation, which means that everybody's right. just buying the same amount of stuff, just paying 0.3 percent more for it. Right, right, right. And the underscore for folks, even though we cheer disinflation because it means the inflation rate is coming down, prices are still rising in a disinflationary environment. Right. It's only when you get to deflation is when when price declines are, are, are net happening. Um, all right. You're touching on sort of several things I, I, I want to get through. Um, and real quick, though, let's talk about the Fed meeting this week, too, because we we, we got an update on the Fed. Uh, we have had a, a pause. Um, uh, I didn't get to watch the, the press conference. I, I heard a lot of 
uh, you know, don't call it a skip is sort of what <laughs> I heard Mal is trying to say to folks. But but, but what, what were your key takeaways from this? And, and let, let me give you mine not having watched the material is, is I think you and I for a long time have thought a pause would be intelligent on the Fed's part here. One, as you said, inflation is going to come down. Math is going to help inflation come down. Um, the lag effect of the rate hikes that the Fed's been making are going to help bring inflation down. And we're going to talk about lag effects in a little bit. But um, it's very unclear at this point in time how much of the lag effect is still coming through the pipeline. And, and we can could make a pretty good argument that the majority of it still is. And so it's probably better because things are trending in the in the direction that the Fed wants for the Fed to wait, just take a wait and see approach, right? And I think that, and, and of course, because we have the additional bank, you know, tightening of bank lending standards that have happened since the banking system uh, hiccups that we've had, and that acts as additional rate hikes. So it, it it seems I think the prudent thing to do here, but but I I think Powell did what I would have encouraged him to do, which is to keep the door open, that like. Look, we're just pausing for a month, and and we could very well resume next month. We're just going to look at the data and see. Is that pretty much how it went down? Yeah, that's exactly it. And again, when you take a look at really what Powell said, he said, you know, basically we are going to do that. He talked specifically talked about the lag effect of monetary policy, and they do want to give that some time to come through. And we have seen that lag effect, right? You know, we we talked about last week how GDP has fallen from twelve percent nominal growth down to about one and a half percent nominal growth. So that lag effect has clearly shown up. We you know, everybody's equating the lag effect to a recession, but all it means is, and we talked about, you know, being on the peak of a mountain, having to go to sea level to get down to the valley, right? Yep. Well, we're heading down that mountain. And so we that lag effect is working. It's working its way through the system. The question is, is whether or not we've completed that effect in the markets. Now, markets are saying absolutely. Again, we the markets have now rallied back to before the Fed has even started hiking rates. So the market's saying all those Fed rate hikes, that's done, right? Lag is done, and you know the economy is going to bottom here, and things are going to start to improve. That's what the market said. So the we, we, this is ahead. the theme I'm getting to in a little bit, but just yeah. to preview it here is we now have a massive showdown over that bet, right? Exactly. We have Powell and lots of data saying there's a crap ton of lag effect coming still, folks, and the markets are saying, "Man, nope. we don't think it's good. We think it's going to be a nothing burger." Yeah, and it's exactly. I mean, look at look at housing. I mean, housing prices ticked up. Used car prices ticked up. You know, you're you're start you're, you're starting. And this is one of the big fears by the Fed, by the way, is that inflation comes down and then resurges. Right. That's that, that's one of their huge fears, and that's one of the reasons they said, "Yeah, we're going to wait and see." But believe me, if we start to see used car prices and home prices tick back up, and and start to see rental rates tick back up. If that starts to occur, the Fed's going to start hiking rates again. So, you know, they're they are very worried. You know, Jerome Powell's been studying that 1970 playbook, and that's the thing he's really most scared about. Yeah, it, totally. And and we've talked about this a bit, but yes, that is Powell. We think is playing for legacy here. He does not want that to happen. He'll err on the side of over tightening because he figures we can fix that because we can just yeah. pump a crap ton of stimulus back in. Real quick, I just want to note it because it's interesting um, where. You know, I had Lucky Lopez on on the channel a couple of weeks ago talking about you know his forecast for the car market, and um, one of the reasons why uh, you know people might point to oh used car prices are going back up oh that's a sign of economic strength or whatever right consumer strength economic strength it very well may not be it may be that there are just no affordable uh, new cars 
on the market, right? New car prices are beginning to come down. But if you want to buy a car for under $25,000, there's only like a thousand or 2000 cars in the entire country, new cars that fit that, that price tag. So if you want a cheap car, which people are increasingly downshifting to because they're getting pinched, you have to flood into the new the used car market, right? So the used car market is seeing this, what may be a short-lived surge of prices because people are basically leaving the new car market for the used car market. So I just mentioned that A, because it's interesting, but it just shows you these cross currents that we could be increasingly experiencing at this time right now, where you might interpret it one way, but the reality actually might be the opposite. Okay, kind of like looking at, at job growth and saying, wow, look at all the job growth we've had. And then you realize it's all in part-time jobs. We're not creating any full-time jobs. Everyone's having to get a second side gig just to stay afloat, right? Yeah. No, I saw a funny uh, tweet this past week. It was, uh, it said, uh, Toyota is issuing a recall on all 1993 Toyota Corollas because it's damn time to buy a new car. <laughs> <laughs> but your point, there's a lot of people that are still driving old cars because they can't afford to buy a new car, to your point. So, you know, it, it's, it, look, it's a, pricing is a problem. And, you know, the more inflation goes up, the, the longer it sustains these higher prices, it's going to be more problematic for the consumer. So the thing about, you know, car prices, and again, we were talking about this earlier in, re in reference to, you know, what's happening with uh, overall prices, a gallon of milk, right? Inflation's coming down. Prices are going to remain sticky. This is going to be the problem for the consumers is that once uh, corporations have pricing power, they're going to be really reticent to drop those prices unless they really get into an inventory bind at some point. And inventories aren't, we don't have that big inventory bulge that we had back in 2022. We've worked through a lot of that. So the problem now for consumers is going to be, yes, inflation is going to come down, but prices aren't going to come down. We're not going back to $2.50 a gallon for gasoline. We're not going to go back to $0.98 cents for a dozen eggs. You know, that's that we're going to look back on that history and go, wow, remember when? Because yeah. prices remain sticky. And this is going to be a problem if wages don't keep, you know, keeping up, so to speak, with the actual cost of living. And the cost of living is rising fairly sharply right now. Yeah, uh, so totally agree. I mean, there's just, I'm, I'm going to get to this in a bit because I still have, when I, when I try to become a bull, I still have a really hard time getting my brain around <laughs> how consumers are going to show up to that party. The, the, the water is so much warmer over here. You should just yeah, no, I, and that, look, I, I'd love to be there. I just, I'm trying to think, can the pool really take as many people as it as it says can fit in it? Because there's a yeah. lot of huge chunk of America I know that is struggling right now for the reasons you're talking about. Um, and, and just to give an example of that. So in this used car situation we're talking about, you know, what's happening is people that need a car, all right, I can't buy a new car. They're just too darn expensive. I got to buy a used car. Well, now you're competing in the used car market with a bunch more people. So prices are going up, right? As we've talked about the um, loan rates on both the lending standards and the loan rates on, on used cars are have gone up pretty dramatically now. Um, so you're paying a lot more in financing charges for this used car. And you have people, I mean, I remember I put that meme up a few weeks back of the woman who bought the like 1998 Ford Escort and basically given her loan, she's going to, she's going to pay like 25 grand for this car. That's probably worth like five grand. Right. But the point is, you know, people are, are, are having to pay an awful lot for these old clunkers that are probably only going to, going to die in them probably in a year or two. Right. So right. like people are getting pushed into getting trapped into bad loans on assets that don't have an intrinsic value that matches the cost of the car anymore. So you, you, with hits like that, that keep coming, I just have a hard time, you know, really jumping in the bullish point. Okay, 
So on the topic, super important point. But one thing you also have to remember is the size of these markets relative to the overall economy. Yeah. The car market as a function of economic growth is very small. Uh, housing is, is not that big of an impact um, and like it used to be. Housing used to be like 20% of GDP growth. Now, now it's like 3 to 5%. It's come down a lot. Um, it's just because of the size of the economy. We have so much stuff in the economy now that drives economic growth, defense spending and all these other things that, you know, it's, it's you know, when you carve out this one issue and say used car prices are going to cause an economic recession, it's certainly not going to help economic growth. But by itself, it's too small of a component. It's, no, no, I, I, I totally agree. Right. It's, it, it's, it's the story we're painting here, though, where you're yeah. talking about the cost of eggs or the yep. imp- just the cost of living is going right. Okay. And then your car cost is going up and you're buying a clunker that's going to need to be repaired more or die right. on you. And then student loans are going back into repayment, right? It's just like, bang, bang, you know, credit card debts at an all-time high uh, interest rate right now, right? It's just like, I would call it the death of a thousand paper cuts, but these don't feel as minor as paper cuts yeah. in a lot of people, but there's still a thousand of them, right? Absolutely. So, but, but Hey, you know, we, we, things are still, Trains still rolling, you know, optimism's increasing. The you know, Michigan consumer confidence just uh, took an uptick here, um, kind of matching your bullish sentiment, right? And so maybe the bottom for that is in, at least for the time being. So um, one of the questions I had for you is, is okay, let's just stand back for a second and kind of look at recession odds here. And um, uh, I had two really interesting back-to-back interviews this week. I talked to Ed Yardeni, who is, you know, more, more bullish as we talked about, and he thinks that we're in a so interestingly he thinks we might be in a recession but he thinks it's a rolling recession which is where kind of the economic um the slow growth is like a baton that gets handed from industry to industry so that as as one weakens others are doing well and then as you know another one starts coming down one starts recovering so you basically remain relatively level through the process, you don't have all sectors conspiring to really bring the economy into a trough the way that we have in the more pronounced recessions. So that was sort of Ed's point of view. Don't say you have to agree with it. Um, he also mentioned two things that one of which you just gave mentioned to you a little while ago, but he said, hey, look, um, there's still a lot of stimulus coming into the system. Yeah, we've turned off the monetary stimulus mostly, um, but we have a lot of spending that's now beginning to hit, especially in the US and infrastructure from the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And you talked about all the construction spending that's going on and and that there's like, they're having problems now finding shovel-ready projects for the money. So the money is kind of piling up, like more money would be coming into the system if there was just more opportunities to spend it right now, right? So that is making a difference here. And he, he thought that was bullish for the economy, no surprise. The other thing he talked about was, you know, we talk a lot about the monetary stimulus and the fiscal side of stimulus. He added a third leg to this now stimulus stool, which is, remember correctly, I think it's 75 million baby boomers have 73 trillion in household net worth, right? And he's like, those those people, you know, yeah, it's not totally evenly distributed amongst all seniors, but the, the, their, their plan is to spend it as much as they can while they're alive. They're gonna travel, they're gonna eat out, they're gonna do all the stuff that they've been sort of saving to do, right? So he said, that's just a wave of, yeah, some of it's gonna get trans, some good chunk will get transferred when they die, but a lot of it's gonna get spent over the next decade or two. And that's that's why we're seeing strong wage growth in hospitality industries and where, where we're seeing all the revenge travel and all that stuff right now. So that's kind of the bullish 
side of like, hey, we may not really experience the type of recession that a lot of people on this channel, myself included, have been saying could happen, right? Now, I'll tell you the other side, and then I'll let you run, um, which is, then I had David Hay, who basically said, I mean, I, I kind of get that, but, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying his, his uh, argument, but he's like, but lag effect, like, you know, we've got these, this horrible data that's, you know, macro data that you and I talk about all the time. And he's like, we haven't seen yet the impact of, of all of the policy tightening um, that that's happened and, and the increase of cost of capital um, and, you know, basically everything that you and I have said is, is, is highly likely going to be slamming into this economy, but people in the market itself are kind of writing off at this point, like, Hey, it hasn't shown you up yet. It's probably not going to be an issue. So I'm curious when you smash those two things together, what do you come up with? Well, so first of all, he's right. Um, and, and by the way, there was this really smart guy. But, but when you say when you say he, you're talking David. I'm talking Ed Yardini, Yardini, right? So, okay. um, but there was this really smart guy, and I'm trying here. Let me share my screen. I can't remember exactly um, when this was, but this really smart guy was on this channel talking with you about a rolling recession. Oh yeah, yeah. It was back. I'm, in I'm worried. April. There we go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Back in April of this year, uh, so Ed listens to our show, basically, uh, we were talking about, you know, this idea of a rolling session, exactly to his point. And, and our, our point was at that time was that we were going through this kind of just continued, you know, kind of hit to the market. And because things were so evenly spaced out, right, we had the Russia-Ukraine war. And so the markets go, okay. Got a war, but that's good for the markets because defense spending. So we rally back and then we get to non-profitable tech and crypto. And so the meme stock starts to fall apart, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we kind of price that in. We start getting some Fed rate hikes and then we rally back up. And then we have the spec IPO blow up. Residential real estate starts to decline. So we price that in. Then we say, OK, that's done. So then we rally back. And so each time regional bank crisis. So each time we were having this the market was having enough time to absorb these impacts and say, okay, I've got it. That's priced into some of these stocks. And remember, you know, just because the broad index wasn't down 30, 40, 50, 60, 70%, there were a lot of stocks. We wrote articles about this uh, back in 2022. There were tremendous numbers of stocks that were down 70, 80, 90% from their peak. What was keeping the market elevated was these big major mega cap companies that were getting all the passive inflows into the market. And so Apple and Microsoft, they were down, but not nearly down as much as the bottom kind of 490 stocks in the index. Those top 10 stocks were supporting the market. It kept the market from declining, even though underneath the surface was just sheer devastation. And if you look back at retail portfolios back in 2022, a lot of retail investors were down 30, 40, 50% versus the market because they owned all those non-profitable companies. And so there's been two things that have been going on in the economy. A, yes, he's absolutely right, absolutely right about this rolling recession. It allows the market to absorb these impacts of Fed rate hikes and all this other stuff. And this goes back to the problem with the lag effect how much is the market already priced in? We've already seen big declines in manufacturing indexes. We've seen big declines in services indexes, et cetera. How much of that lag effect has already occurred because we were coming from such elevated levels? We've already had the impact. Uh, and I'm not saying we're done. Don't, take, don't, don't say we're done. 
I'm not saying we're finished, but we're rolling down that hill towards the valley, but we've already used up a lot of that downhill momentum, right? Uh, and even though we haven't gotten the recession yet, a lot of that lag effect is getting priced in by the market overall. And so this is why it's important to, to, to step back and say, just because we have the lag effect, we're all expecting this super deep recession, but we weren't starting at 2% growth. If, if we were at 2% growth when all this stuff started, then yeah, we would probably be running a negative or eight or 9% uh, GDP right now. And everybody'd be going, yeah, here's that recession, right? Everybody's talking about it. But because we were starting at 12% and going to one, we're not in a recession yet, but a lot of damage has been done to the economy already. And we keep expecting more, but at some point, remember, markets are about time. And the more time the market has to, to basically factor in to prices and outlook and earnings and these type of things, issues, then those issues become non-issues because the market's already, I, I'm aware of it. I got it. I understand it. I can model for it. I can, I can deal with it. What the market's not priced for is something that happens tomorrow that nobody's expecting. In other words, tomorrow, Wells Fargo goes out of business. The market is not priced for that, right? The market is not priced for next month, we have a jump in unemployment that goes to four and a half percent. The market is not priced for that. Those are the things, those unexpected events is what will derail the market. But until or unless one of those things occur, this market's going to continue to price in this data because it has time to do it. And that's the important thing about what Ed was saying about this rolling recession. All right. Great explanation. Curious, um, what do you think about his sort of third leg on the stool here of, of a big wave of boomer discretionary spending um, oh, yeah. really acting as a support here? Yeah, that, that's true. Because um, we haven't not, we haven't really talked about that head on on this program all that much, but maybe right. we should be. No, no, you you should be, but that's also but that's a double edged sword, right? So if I've got my where's okay, I'm a baby boomer, right? I'm right at the tail end of it. I'm actually kind of split right between Gen X and baby boomer. Um, but I've got a bunch of money sitting in the bank or in investments or whatever. My money's got to be somewhere, right? It's, 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 you know, if I'm going to spend this money, if I've got this wealth, I've got to spend it. So it's got to be somewhere first in order for me to spend it. Fair enough? Absolutely. Because I'm, I'm theoretically retired, so I'm not working. So the, theoretically, as a boomer, I'm retired now. I don't, have any, I don't have any income coming in except, you know, dividends or rental income or whatever, my passive flows, but I'm not working anymore. So now I'm going to be spending my money to pay my mortgage, to travel, to eat, those type of things. So if I'm spending money on those things, which does support the economy, where's the money coming from? Yeah, it might be, it might be depressive on financial asset prices if folks are selling to get out. I'm, I'm talking more economic growth right now. No, no, no. But, but what I'm saying is, is there's... We've, but it's important though, right? Because we have, there's, 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 there's not just a positive, right? It's okay. basic accounting. If you've got a positive, you got to have a negative. Right. So, and I guess what you're saying is earnings might go up, but multiples might go down because of the selling and we may just now all net out. Exactly. So, so again, there's, there's a negative side to that, but he is correct, right? So boomers will be spending money, but boomers aren't the ones that are spending money on experiences, right? Those are the millennials. That's what they spend money on. If you take a look at, at surveys, 
what do millennials want to buy? They want, they spend their money. They don't sure. care about big houses. They don't care about big cars, supposedly. Um, they want experiences. So they spend all their money on these experiences that have their one time in nature, have no future return, but they had a lot of fun, right? So they enjoy their money. Boomers, and, and if you take a look, there was a, a really great graphic. I'm wondering if I can find that real. It was a Wall Street, uh, it was a New York Times article earlier this week. And I can't remember where I saw it, but they had a, ni a nice graphic on uh, generational wealth. Baby boomers obviously have just a massive slug of this generational wealth. Um, millennials have a smaller piece. And if you take a look at where their allocations are, right, where they have their money, about 20% is in equities. A big chunk of it is in, in, is in real estate, right, their houses or whatever houses they own. Yeah. Um, and then a big chunk is business wealth. Right. So this is money that they that they have or value or wealth that they have in their business. Right. So I own a business. So a big chunk of my net worth is the value of my business. Um, but that's not liquid. Right. I can't sell my business to generate liquidity. Right. So we also have to look at these factors from the standpoint of what's liquid and what's not. So, yes, there may be support from the baby boomers to support the economy. But a lot of their wealth is tied up in illiquid assets. So it's not going to be easily converted into liquidity to drive markets. Now, a lot of that will be inherited wealth. It will go down to millennials and to Gen Xers, et cetera, as you know, generation passes to generation, so forth and so on. It'll pass down. But a lot of those assets are illiquid. And lastly, where are boomers going to spend the vast majority of their money? This is your investment thesis going forward from here. Their vast majority in the last part of their lives. Bingo. Right. Which is why you want to own a lot of healthcare stocks in your portfolio, even though they're not performing right now. That's where money is going to be in the next 20 years. Yeah. And and look, I, I don't think we're going to get time to get to some of the lessons I've been learning over the past week. Um, but but that has been a really big one, which is yeah. the uh, the amount of healthcare and the cost of that healthcare that that happens in the last mile of life. Um, so I, I agree a, a thousand percent with that observation. Um, all right, look, um, well, as we as we start to wrap up here, Lance, one more question, then I'll ask you about your trades. Um, kind of a high level question, because, you know, earlier you said really this market market's future is really all de dependent on where earnings go from here. Right. Um, right now, it's got a relatively sanguine earnings outlook. And the big question, I think you even asked it, which is, you know, where is that going to come from? Right. So will it come from uh, just the organic growth that we see, plus all this infrastructure spending coming in, plus maybe boomers helping out with revenge travel and stuff like that this year. Is that is that going to be enough? Or, um, and just at a really high level, is can the economy withstand the current cost of capital we have? Like if I had told you, I think two years ago, Lance, we're going from near zero to five, you know, five percent plus in the Fed funds rate, you know, what do you think would have happened to the economy? I'm guessing you would have said, well, like we're, we're going to have a really tough time. Um, wh which do you think is more likely here? Well, look, I, I, look, earnings are going to grow, right? Um, because of the economy, the economy is going to grow over time, period. The problem is, is that earnings are priced so far above, or, let me, let me back that up. They're not priced. Earnings are estimated right now to be so far above what the economy can generate on a long-term basis 
that an economy growing at 2% cannot generate 6 to 8% earnings growth every year, which is what's currently expected. See, that's Got the it. So we're living yeah. in that dichotomy right now. We're going to figure out how it resolves, but that's the disconnect, right? And, just and, just and, on math. Yeah, just, right? The math says eventually that earnings have to go back to 2%-ish growth every year on a normalized basis. Now, coming out of a recession, you're always going to have big earnings growth, right? right? Because, you know, you have et cetera. So earnings come slapping back as the economy gets back yeah. underway. You got a low bar to compare to. Got it. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but once we get back into the trend of growth, which is where we're heading to now, um, that rate has got to come down. So earnings estimates are too elevated. Those are going to have to come down dramatically. Earnings growth is going to be there, but it's not enough to support valuations at 40 times price to sales, you know, 30 times price to sales. And there's a ton of companies there, you know, Microsoft is trading at 12 times price to sales. It can't support that. It yeah. can't that fast. Um, there's a lot of cheap companies out there that are trading at less than one times price to sales. Those are the companies I'd be, they're, they're not performing right now. They're not fun. They're not going to go up hundred percent in a month, but they're going to generate good growth for you over time because they are fundamentally cheap. All right. Really well said. Okay. So that then brings us to trades. You you did share throughout this whole discussion today a number of the things you're doing, but what's what are the most material things you did in the past week? Uh the, the only the only excuse me. <clears throat> the only couple of things we did this past week, again, we're 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 kind of in wait and see mode a little bit with the portfolio. So the one thing I said that we did do is we started to shift the duration following the Fed meeting. We're starting to, to lengthen the duration in our portfolio. And we have kind of a barbell uh, approach to our duration. We've got a good bit on the long end, but the, the middle bar, we're starting to, to stretch out a little bit more. Um, then on the equity side, you, on uh, Wednesday, United, we, had, uh, uh, we have a, a good bit of exposure to healthcare in our portfolios for the same reasons we just talked about. And we had exposure to insurers in our portfolio at UNH and CVS. Um, on Wednesday, United Healthcare came out and, and one of their vice president guys said, hey, look, um, boomers, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, boomers are not putting off surgeries. They are now starting to ramp up and do surgeries, knee replacements, hip replacements, you know, all those yeah. types of things. Because A, they have money and B, they're like, this, this technology has gotten to the point that, you know, it's a pretty easy operation to have. I'm up and running again, literally, <laughs> in you know, yeah. a couple of weeks. And, and so more and more people are beginning to, that have money are beginning to opt for these surgeries. And that, of course, drives up costs for insurers. And But what it helps is it helps all the people that obviously that are providing the, the, the devices, the, the medical care, those type of things. So we sold UNH. Um, on that news, and we bought Striker Medical, which actually provides the hip devices, the knee replacements, all those type of things. And we added to our position in Abbott, which is also in that same space on the medical device side. Um, and we maintained our position in CBS, which we love that company long-term, 0.29 times price to sales, 3.6% dividend yield, grows their sales every year, and they are vertically integrated right now. They own not just, the, they do have the insurer part because they acquired Aetna, which is getting hurt. But if you are having surgery, you've got to do what, right? After your surgery, the first thing you've got to go do is fill your prescriptions. Yep. That's CBS. And while you're 
CVS, then you pick up a whole bunch of crap you don't really need. It's kind of going to Target. <laughs> and, and, and so that so that vertical integration, that business is very appetizing here when combined with the medical device side of the market. Uh, we also own AbbVie. We didn't add to that position, but AbbVie is, uh, for the vanity of people, they do all the Botox. So as, as the baby boomers get older and they want to look younger, uh, AbbVie has a very good space set in there. So again, that's the, these stocks on the healthcare side have been beaten up brutally over the last year. And, you know, this is one of those areas that, you know, I, I am hugely bullish on going forward. And, and, you know, we're overweight healthcare in our portfolio. And opportunistically, we're going to keep adding to these positions because over the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to make a lot of money in these sectors. All right. Well, thanks for so, but, but importantly, you got to have that view, right? You can't get all tied up with, oh, I'm missing the NVIDIA rally and right. worrying about that. If you're truly investing, you buy stuff cheap that's going to make you money over time. And I'm getting paid three to four to five percent yields just to sit here and wait. I'll do that all day long. Great. All right. Well, thanks for sharing the details. And again, you're also sharing kind of how a long-term capital manager thinks, uh, the discipline that you follow. Um, and like I said, you know, given what I've been going through uh, with my mom's journey here uh, recently, um, I, I feel like I'm getting like a, I feel like I've been spending time in the future that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, all right. it's, all, it's all coming to get us, buddy. It is all coming to get us. And and look, folks, um, uh, we'll, 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 Punt on uh, lessons learned, um, though I will share uh, just a couple quick things as we wrap up here. One is, again, my, my extreme uh, gratitude on the very kind words that so many of you have been sending. Thanks. They mean an awful lot to me and my family. Um, Lance and I have talked a lot in the past about like what really matters in life, like what really constitutes wealth. And we talked about, you know, when you, you, you go into Google and see the 100-year-old people interviewed and they say it's about relationships, it's about your life having purpose, and then about health, obviously. Um, I can definitely say from very recent firsthand experience down in the trenches, that's all that matters at the end here and and right. and, and making memories and, and the memories that you, because at the end, that's all you have when you're waiting for the end is, is, is those. And, and fortunately, we've had a, a really great uh, opportunity with my mom to, uh, to really sort of, um, uh, you know, sit with her, talk with her, laugh with her, really, you know, hear, tell all the great stories, hear some stories that she hadn't shared before. Folks have been encouraging me to record them, and I have been, so thank you for that advice. Um, we'll, we'll treasure those recordings after she's gone. Um, so uh, it's, it's uh, again, it's just been a really, you know, uh, firsthand remember from life, uh, or a reminder from life on what really, truly matters. And uh, it, it's investing, you know, mostly in those relationships and just spending spending your days in a way that when you reflect back on your life, you're going to say, yeah, you know, what I did here was was meaningful to me. Um, beyond that tonight, folks, just go just go hug your loved ones tight. Take, take, take that from me. Um, but anyways, folks, you're going to see me bounce around from different backgrounds like you've seen a bit this week. Um, I had to fly out uh, last week when we thought we were losing her in the moment. Fortunately, she recovered and then we had some great times with her. Now she's actually sleeping and not able to wake up. I, I, I think her conscious days are behind her. I had to then rush back to California, which is where I'm recording now because my older daughter is graduating from college right now. So I'm sprinting to that after Lance and I finish here. It's nice to have a celebration of something positive in life. And that was definitely my mother's guidance, which is go do that. As soon as that's done, I'm flying back <laughs> to the East Coast. So you're going to see me changing lots of different uh, backgrounds here as we do all this, but but thanks in advance for your your patience and tolerance on that. Um, Lance, buddy, it's been great. Just a last reminder for folks, 
you know, I think Lance and I did a really good job of uh, underscoring how these markets are just going to keep us guessing here. And I know for a lot of people, especially those that that look at the fundamental data and they're pulling out their hair as what the market's doing right now, um, it's just another reason to to recruit the guidance of a professional financial advisor who understands the arc of markets, all the issues we've talked about here, all the portfolio gardening stuff that Lance has been talking about. If you have a good one who's doing that for you, building a personal portfolio plan for you, and then executing it for you while keeping you involved, great. Those guys are really rare. You should stick with them. But if you don't have one, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even Lance and his team there at REA, uh, then consider scheduling a free consultation with the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion. To do that, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, only takes a couple of seconds. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a uh, a public service that they offer in addition to these wonderful weekly uh, you know, sharing of their thoughts with, with our audience here at Wealthion. Um, and uh, if you'd like to see these uh, weekly market recaps with Lance and I continue from here, we sure love them. Um, do us a favor, uh, show your support by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And Lance, I'll let you walk folks out here. Any parting bits of advice? Uh, two things. I, I think you know you were just talking about something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is you know there's two things in life that you know you, you can't fix, and you know one of those is broken friendships broken trust and and you know that's why it's always so important to you know do what you say you're going to do follow through and this is one thing I, I drive into my kids constantly i don't care what else you do in life the the one the only thing that you have as a person is that people can trust you and and so mm -hmm. what you say and what you do matters and the other thing you can't fix is regret and and you know the the you know the worst thing that you can do in life is to be on your deathbed with a life full of regret so you know, focus on those things that, you know, you can fix those, those broken relationships, those broken friendships, those things, e even if they're not willing to reciprocate, you reach out and say, hey, I apologize for whatever it is, try to mend that relationship. Because again, those things will matter. At, at the end of your life, you'll look back and go, I wish I would have and you don't want to do that. So my prayers are with you, my friend. And, and uh, you know, if you need anything, you call me. I'm always here for you, but I'll definitely be praying for you and your mom. Hey, thanks, buddy. I really do appreciate that. All right, everybody else. Well, look, thanks so much. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much for watching.